we're currently at the stage where risk and value or skin in the game is constructed socially, and we haven't crystallized it yet into being constructed technically in the organization. So we've built, I think, the social compact and the governance decision-making frameworks and the kind of trust in the infrastructure of how we are trying to reliably create that. I think what we haven't yet done is created what I would call an incentive pooling system or incentive mechanism, which does that through a technical lens. Care has really become part of that because risk holding, responsibility and accountability is very distributed across the organisation. And so the platform of care becomes a really critical foundation for people to be able to step into that agency with the security and support that they need. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. So welcome back to the second episode of this season three of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. Uh, so in this episode, we had a chat with Indy Johar, uh, founding director of Dark Matter Labs and his colleague Annette Dami, who is uh, holding the organizing and operational work at Dark Matter Labs and especially leading a project called Beyond the Rules that we explored on the Dark Matter Labs Medium blog, uh, which became the trigger for this conversation. So again, we are just making a short uh, commentary before jumping into the episode. So what I found very interesting in this conversation is how they described that they don't see themselves as really operating in existing markets. They more see themselves as creating new markets. And that makes a lot of sense when you go into all the nuances that they are trying to build into their organization, how they define uh, value, how they see themselves as, as uh, in, in relation to value creation and so on. Uh, so that was one of my really highlights of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, uh, a bunch of other points that I would like to, to highlight is that uh, uh, we have been speaking about uh, building learning capacity inside the organizations. And uh, uh, besides uh, this maybe not being such a new thing when you think about organizations, uh, uh, you know, today, uh, because this debate about uh, learning organizations has been fairly long, uh, India has a way to frame it in a, in a way that's really convincing. You know, this idea of this thesis of genius that he speaks about when you think about uh, the people inside your organization. So this kind of responsibility you have to create the space for making these people accountable and to making these people responsible uh, through these structures of learning. So I think that, that was a, an important point that we Discuss. And then another couple of very, f- very short reflections that I would like to offer before you starting to listen to this crazy conversation. Two points that uh, we raised during the conversation. One was this uh, acknowledging uh, uh, the ability uh, for our organizations now to work uh, as uh, in the said diagonally through local and global dimensions, which uh, I think is really uh, marking the work that uh, Dark Matter Labs uh, is doing. Uh, And uh, finally, um, another point that I think is going to be the leading trait of this conversation for you listening to this is this tension and the spectrum between an idea of uh, uh, an organization that, uh, uh, you know, spends too much into kind of a 
patronizing governance structures. Uh, so this idea of uh, taking care of the people in the organization. And on the other side, uh, this idea to foster independent and autonomous, uh, almost autocratic uh, entrepreneurialism. So I think uh, this was, for me, the highlight of this amazing conversation we had. And I encourage you guys, to listeners, to to go to the, our website and, and go to boundless.io slash podcast slash DML, where you can find uh, this episode and more generally looking into boundless.io resources uh, slash podcast where you can you can find all the other conversations so enjoy this second episode and catch up soon hello everyone uh, simone here as always uh, your uh, co-host of the boundless conversations podcast and today for the second episode of the season we have uh, two very special friends from uh, dark matter labs annette dami Hi, Simone. Great to be here. Thank you. And uh, my good friend, Indy Johar. Hi, Simone. Lovely to be here. And of course, I have my usual co-host and uh, partner in crime in this podcast, Sina Heikila. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. Thank you all uh, for joining us today. I think today is going to be a slightly special conversation because we are really Again, talking about mutuating this for my guests today, we're going to talk about the dark matter of organizing, which is something that uh, many of us uh, that are venturing out in this new space of non-traditional, I would say, or post-industrial, in many ways, organizations uh, uh, deal with uh, uh, all the time, you know, especially as founders or designers, or sometimes as consultants. Uh, but that's the point. I think we are talking about how do we build uh, uh, new types of uh, of institutions, and uh, I, I recall this conversation. This the idea for these conversations uh, started from a recent series that uh, Dark Matter Labs is is producing on Medium, organizing uh, beyond the rules. That uh, really was a great eye opener for me on many fronts about the depth and complexity of showing up as part of uh, an organization that transcends the traditional idea of sitting somewhere, getting orders about what you have to do. On the other hand, I think uh, in my experience, I have this continuous, I'm wrangling uh, myself continuously, let's say, with this idea of uh, understanding how much we should be caring about governance in our organizations instead of how much maybe we should be caring about, I don't know, creating value uh, more generally or from a, a more traditional perspective, uh, making our organization sustainable by you know creating products or enterprising, somebody would, would say. So maybe we can start from there. I mean, sometimes I see uh, all this conversation around governance and, and taking care of how we organize a bit uh, uh, wasteful and uh, uh, sometimes uh, I feel like we should really uh, acknowledge uh, the uh, cultural biases that we have uh, we have when we approach this and la- last week I, I said something that uh, created some debate on Twitter I said our organizations should be maybe less about addressing trauma and more about addressing drama uh, I don't know if this is a good <laughs> It's a good starting point for, for the conversation and, and who wants to jump in, maybe reconnecting these points with your experience at Dark Matter Labs. I'm happy to jump in and sort of build a bridge uh, in that situation. So I think 
you know, intuitively what you're feeling is right. It has been an overhead in many systems because it's been effectively a control architecture, an architecture of control. And as our systems have become more and more complex, the overhead of control has become, has had to become more complex, vast amounts of money to be invested in it, and also reduction of freedom, and also the reduction of the ability to create value. Now, I think that's a function of a control model of governance in a complex emergent world. And I think that's because we've got an industrial worldview, an industrial idea of the world, and we're governing through an industrial idea. I think there's a different way of governing, which is not about governing, but it's actually about uh, building the learning capacity and building governance, not through a control theory, but through a learning capacity, which fundamentally transforms the theory of governance, which is not about controlling agents, but actually building the meta learning capacity for the system to become smarter at the front end. So the, in that model, it's not a control model, it's an ennoblement model. Governance becomes a noble model to make every one of us smarter and help us learn and compound our learning. And that theory is not just about learning internally, but it's actually learning at a stakeholder level. So I think in a complex emergent age, we actually have to shift from a control model of governance where everyone else has seemed to be directively controlled to a learning model. And I think that, that moment you turn it from being an overhead to actually being a fundamental value agent in the complex emerging world, because nobody, no individual can produce the complex things that we need to make. So they require complex collaboration and learning to become a fundamental mechanism to do that, especially if we're going to deal with it in a structural sense. That would be my way of taking, which I think intuitively what you're saying is right, I think, but shifting the kind of whole landscape. And I think that to me has been the fundamental expression in DM is that, and learning is, and to make learning, I think, means you have to create space. So Adam Purvis in our organization, one of his key roles is to make space. And, you know, I jokingly, when I first talked to him, I said, you know, please tell me to fuck off and shut up. Because space happens when you actually are able to create space regardless of who it is. And then you also have to create the integrity and the detail of how you make decisions. And I think one of the most amazing things and that's brought to the organization is a really fantastic decision-making process. And the integrity of that decision-making process actually has been really, really powerful. I'm just using two examples, but fundamentally, if you're going to build a learning organization, you have to be able to build that learning capacity in the system, but you also then have to be able to build that learning capacity as a, as a structural behavior. So, so when you talk about trauma, the reality is if many people have been have been operating in organizations where actually learning wasn't the modality but was control, or they are precarious, psychologically precarious because of actually economic history that they've been living in, that actually learning becomes difficult and actually fear and other mechanisms are more easily appropriated. So to build a learning organization is also about creating the stability and the, and the structural capacities of a learning organization, which is just everyone, rather than those that are living in the kind of illusions of, or you know, the privileges of, of non-precarious environments. And that becomes actually a fundamental structural thing of the organization itself, building itself into that future. So, I mean, just to bridge that conversation in that way. I think I would maybe add, add some things to um, what you were saying in terms of our context as well. Um, I feel like there's, questions about agency that are entangled with this um you know our context as in the work that we're doing is really looking at these wicked socioeconomic problems and we know that really for us to be able to show up to 
for the level of complexity and interdependence that those problems are sat with really requires agency from from all of us you know all of us to be able to step into um our different crafts our different realms of creativity um that we can bring to the questions our different perspectives that we brings our our frames our unique ways of thinking and so for me governance is really entangled with that question of well how what does it mean for there to be a the poss- even the possibility of of real deeply distributed agency and people to feel able to step into that agency um and you know the the governance framework that we were looking at in um and and talking around on the medium blogs around looking at the balance between accountability and risk holding responsibility and power and autonomy and how they sit out in a system is really deeply entangled with this question around what does it really mean to unlock the agency of people who are working towards these different questions so in that sense uh i i don't see it as a um yeah i i see it in a different way rather than as a as an overhead but perhaps an enabling condition to be able to really bring that entrepreneurial approach and create the maximum value that you can create towards these sort of questions this conversation makes me think about the need to embed in our new institu- organizational prototypes some of the roles that we used to attribute to to traditional institutions like for example agency you know probably in the industrial age we were used to companies that normally didn't really care about agency you know this was something more at the social level no more at the, at the level of the nation state maybe a responsibility of the nation state that of in, ensuring that everybody has the right agency in society you know and instead i'm seeing you talking about you know the need to create this organization in a way that you know takes over these problems for example no agency and uh, uh, to some extent this also reconnects with the idea of what is the role of this organization that you are building you know uh, because uh, uh, technically if we look at uh, the context we live today uh, we live in a specialized society where normally organizations have to have their business model let's say they have to be sustainable from a perspective of i would say a financial sustainability perspective uh, and so they had to have products they had to uh, be efficient uh, they have to be sustainable and have the pnl positive pnl let's say profit and loss and uh, if you connect the dots essentially you arrive at the moment where you say you know in a in a market where in a society where technology is pervasive transaction cost is very low mm-hmm. Uh, to some extent i would be tempted to think about organizations as uh, very low governance very much made of independent cells that coordinate and create the space inside of them these cells to basically be very autocratic and very you know teamocratic if you want you know teamocratic in terms of team team at the helm let's say so to some extent uh, i see that your way to really investing governance and designing gov- making this dark matter visible let's say is for you a way to say no we want to refuse this society and we want to create a new new form of institution this is not a company this wants to address wicked problems systemic problems so first this is the first thing i wanted to bounce back to you as a, as a way of reflection but as a as a further a uh, quick reflection one point that i want to 
to, to races. Isn't this problematic if we look at the context of complexity? So why should such an organization address a systemic problem? Shouldn't this organization address a local problem? So it shouldn't be caring about, for example, its own community landscape instead of having this idea that it can engage with uh, these very high level, high systemic problems. Uh, I mean, doesn't call in some kind of uh, organizational hubris, uh, if you want. Uh, I mean, I'm not, of course, I'm not criticizing. I'm bringing these problems on the table and understanding what is the role of our organization, what should be the role of our organizations. How do you, what do you think about yeah. that? It, this is great. Um, okay. <laughs> Simone, very good. Thank you for bringing this to the table. Lots of different points. So one, I think the question, I think there's a fundamental difference between an organization developed for what I would call commodity value. So if you're trading commodity pre-understood value and you're trading it, um, that is a machine system to which humans may be involved, but actually it's a pre-configured, I to say, products you make. You sell the products and services and you commoditize that value. I think, I think that is one theory of value creation. I think another theory of value creation is that you are actually an organization which is in the act of continuous discovery. So you're not focused on products or services, but you're actually in the discovery of the discovery of value. Now, when you're in the continuous act of discovery of value, the conditions for that are fundamentally different to commodity value organizations. Commodity value organizations is about predictability, it's about control, it's about precision, it's about quality control, which is actually different to where you are trying to actually discover value in, in that thesis. And if you're trying to discover value, then I think you have to create the context for living in that precarity. You have to build a different type of capacity of an organization to deal with it. So that's one thing I think is worth us recognizing. And, and I think one of the intuitive things is that, in a way for me, is the fundamental value of an organization in the 21st century is the human. And, and why I say that is that actually in an age of automation and proceduralization, actually the full dimensional um, uh, unlocking of human value, which I think is actually complex creativity, care, uh, co complex cognition, all of that stuff, to address problems that are not pre-understood is fundamentally a different form of value formation and requires a different form of corporate theory. And most of our corporate theory is organized around proceduralization, commodification, and unitary value at the present. So I think it's worth us, and I think we intentionally are, and I don't think we ever talked about this publicly, we, we are intentionally focused on what is a new human organization, which is actually about unlocking the full capacity of being human. Now, the second part of this question is about the state. And again, I think it's a really interesting point. And we have internally have had this debate of what is the role of DM in terms of internally and externally. And you know, so the, and there is a fundamental difference between what I would say as a population level response and, um, and a company level response. A population level response can look at whole population effects, micro biases in society or biases in society at three or 4%, right? So you can talk about, I think you can, you, at a population level, you can talk about all sorts of discrimination in, in that level. Now, when you get to a company level effect, we have to start to talk about the intersectional effects on individuals. Because actually, the population, you are not a population, we are not a population size. We are, everyone is particular with intersectional realities of their life. That requires us to understand 
and actually create context in a completely different way. So I think there's a role for companies to address the intersectional effects of people, and there's a role of states to talk about population-level biases and inequalities that exist at a systemic level. Now, that means that companies have a role to play, and I think states have a role to play. I don't think it's about one or the other. No doubt about it. I think we are living in an age where I think states are regressing from their, I think what they need to be focused on is unlocking the full capacity of all humans. And I don't think states are doing what they're doing. So we may be living in a period very similar to the 19th century, where the corporations were providing, originally started to provide new forms of welfare in new forms of whether it's housing and other formations, because it was fundamental to the value engine they were discovering. Now, I'm not trying to compare DM to any of those things. I think there's much better organizations doing that than DM. But I think there's something going on where actually states are no longer able to quote the social contract to do the new theory of unlocking agency. And I think companies are having to do it, which I think is a massive issue because it creates huge losses and overheads in systems which could be done at the national level. So I don't think this should be an inherent function. I think this is a function that's happening as a result of the loss of, loss of capability. So those are three things. Um, the final things, um, the final point for me would be, I think a company for me is just an organization of people. And I think whether we, you know, whether we're dealing with complex problems or whether we're dealing with, you know, you, you could argue, is it hubris to build a platform called Facebook, which actually has how many billion people versus to build a company like Apple, which actually builds technology which billions of people use. I, I, I'm not sure the hubris is in, in the attempt to solve these problems. I think the real problem is when you monopolize and rent seek through these platforms and frameworks. And I think the question for, for me is actually, it is important that we start to deal with a new theory of organizing. That's why I would say, you know, what I find refreshing, and it's been a real pleasure to see NS leadership on this, is that I think we have to mirror what we're talking about outside in terms of dealing with complexity to actually build some of those capabilities inside. And I think it's a fundamental DNA thing about how you organize internally and how you organize externally to build actually those frameworks. And I think it does challenge theories of boundary theories of what is the boundary of, of, of the organization. And is, is an organization built through boundary? Is it built through momentum? Is it built through taxonomy? And I think it will challenge many of these preconceptions over time as we evolve into it. But yeah, all great questions, and I do appreciate them. Just going to pick up on a couple of parts to your question as well, um, Simone. Um, you know, you spoke a bit about the context of working in complexity and some of the, the specifics of that. So I thought I'd just speak to a couple of those. Um, I know you mentioned about like why not organize sort of as independent cells that are coordinated um, with each other. And I think that um, in the context of this type of work that we're doing, uh, it, it's kind of a yes and. So I, I think in many ways we do have a heavy element of that in the way that we organize. Um, there's lots of sort of distributed organizing where people form into, into groups um, for particular pieces of work. People move around, you know, those can units can unform and reform into new ones um, quite readily. And part of the way that the, the, the our way of organizing kind of enables that ready movement around the system. Um, but if that all of that movement was done independently and that um, there wasn't a bit more of a, a, a supporting, I, I mean, I know in your work you shared, talked about shared services that they might collaborate around and whilst I think that there is an element of that you know there are 
there are services, if you will, kind of billing and hiring support and tech and tools and things that are done at a more centralized level. There are other types of platforms that are really important for this type of work. So, for example, like the learning piece is so important in this um, circumstance of complexity. We had lots of independent units that weren't speaking to each other and didn't have other forms of being able to compound the learning between each of their work. We would lose a huge amount of understanding creation that happens from when they come together and they can pull their perspectives on on questions from lots of different angles so there's like a real compounding of value that's created from ability to do that and again you know if we didn't if we didn't have things in place that were helping to support the agency of the different act you know all the different people who are partaking in that we'd end up with actually maybe independent units but a real variation of agency within those units and so there would still be a bias towards the people that the systems were more um, readily set up to support the agency of. Um, so, uh, you know, I feel that some of these other components that we feel are like critical platforms for this type of work really speak to the part of um, our context of complexity that's in it. Um, and, you know, why not? <laughs> why not just focus on local problems? I mean, I think uh, in many ways we do. Again, I feel like it's a bit of a yes and. Um, many of us have come to Dark Matter Labs from that so starting to work on local problems and just finding how stuck you get after a while because our local questions are so entangled with much broader questions and um, you know there's only so much movement you can make without actually looking at those wider um, questions that the, the dark matter the deep codes you know um, all sorts of sort of questions that sit across local contexts um, so we both uh, work at a local level and at that broader deep code level so that we can try and kind of work uh, at different levels of the system at the same time. Thanks for, for that. And I wanted to come back to what you said, Indy, about this commodity value is one theory. And then we have sort of the discovery of value and trying to create that human organization like, like you are doing. So I'm curious about going more into that and think about what your ambition might be with this kind of prototyping that you're doing so you're you're clearly testing to create a real learning organization from what i understand and there is an element of wanting to influence systemic issues by doing by doing that so it's almost like uh and i don't know if you are aiming at some kind of standardization maybe it's impossible but i'm i'm curious to know like uh, is is that something that you you want to go into, like scaling this, making this easier for others to to sort of replicate, start to work with the same kind of processes that you do? So that's one part of my question. Is it is there an ambition to scale? And then also, I know Annette, you said that you have also come from a little bit social enterprise arenas and and so on in the past. So I'm wondering also, can this also be applied then to an organization that do produce products? You know, because one would think that we also need to change our production systems <laughs> and maybe sort of rethink uh, on how we produce commodities in the, in the capitalist system, because mass consumption and mass commoditization is <laughs> also not, uh, we, we know it's not a very positive outcome. So so that, that's kind of my, my two questions. One, do you want to scale this human organization so others can imitate and adapt and so on? And do you think that by extension, you can also have companies producing products using the same kind of system that you're trying to build? So I try to be ambivalent to scale. 
I, I, I sometimes find scale is a bit of a trap um, because the conversation evokes, um, you know, I want to be a thousand person organizer or a 10,000 person. It's like some kind of game. Whereas actually I'm, I'm not that particularly interested in, in the conversation of scale through a quantum idea. What I'm interested in is the efficacy required to organize human capital to be able to actually do complex things. So one of my big frustrations with, with social enterprises, social enterprises is great at making chocolate, being fuck all useless largely at building complex things. And that's not a function of, and fair trade is probably one of the big exceptions I would argue, or fair, uh, fair fair, one of the few exceptions that really got into complex things. Now, the reason I'm, I'm I sort of slightly over-exaggerate to make a point, but my point being that I think, I think if we're going to deal with a com complex, anything complex, I think we have to build capabilities which are polymathic. So what I'm very interested in is how do you build polymathic organizations? Organizations with different po polymathic capabilities which can be hybridized to create complex things in the world. That requires us to have a typology of scale. Now, the question is, do you, when do you fall back into your theory of scale into seeing humans as a control unit model? So as soon as you start to put sort of humans as subordinates to the roles, rather than the roles being fluid to the humans, I think you, you flip the model. We, we make it different. So then the question is, how do you build a human organization in terms of being learning and development oriented and not control oriented as much as possible with the platform. So I think for me, the problem is about polymathic capabilities to deal, deal with the complex challenges we face and then building the institutional infrastructure, which allows for a relational uh, non-control oriented organization. And that to me is a stretch question, right? It's a stretch. I don't know what that limit is. I don't, I purposely am denying the theory of there being a limit that I think is factually true. I'm, I'm not assuming a Dunbar number. I'm not assuming any of these things that they are natural limits. I think we will learn and adapt. And I think we're learning and adapting continuously about what type of infrastructures are required to do that. And we're learning all the time about that. Like Annette and I were, I think we're talking the other day about actually the need for more pop-up studios, but a sense of isolation. So I think there'll be new frameworks to deal with this stuff as we evolve. So that's number. The, the second point is I totally agree with you about the asset. I merely use that as an illustration of where a commodity economy versus what I would call kind of a discovery discovery or sort of de uh, development society. Uh, the reality is we need all of our assets. All assets should go from being assets as objects to being generative things. All products are not products, but they're generative frameworks. So when you start to see things as, as not objects, but becomings, then you need a learning framework at the center of it. So control model, control does not work for 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 a for thing in becoming. So I think as you become a becoming product making, when the product is a becoming agency, it's evolving. Then the learning fundamental learning becomes fundamental to that organization. And I think that that I think would so what I showed as a polarity to make a point. Actually, I would say is going to be a convergence. And that that learning model, if we turn from go from objects to becomings then we have to fundamentally not only imagine the orchestration of the organization but also the orchestration of capital so how do you finance things which are actually learning development models and i think only the i would say very very big organizations like apple and stuff have been able to do that because the surpluses that are generated systemically are allowing them to innovate in these structural formats and outside control and outside and, to, and take the risk of being outside the control modalities and even apple i think is a very control oriented organization in that theory so 
that's how I would probably in, intuitively respond around both those things uh, in, in that way. And that will come in and make everything better. No, I won't. <laughs> no, I, um, I, you know, I thought that was really interesting what you were saying, Indy. And I think, um, you know, the question around products really um, it speaks to some of the DM work that yourself and others in the team have been doing around self-sovereign things, um, which I've uh, not been so involved in. Um, and, and, you know, your question about how do these apply to organizations that produce products? Um, well, I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't think it's something that we've been actively looking to explore because our aim in exploring this isn't how can we create a model that we can then scale and give to other people because uh, I do think a lot of it is contextualized I think a lot of the insight is in the questions that are asked um, and in the way that people probe their scenarios and the um, the, the types of probes you can you can spot ways that people are experimenting um, but the the nuance of it is very specific to different contexts. So I, I'm not sure there is a model that, that gets, you know, that people can pick up and, and implement uh, in different uh, settings. Uh, I think there are great questions and frame thought frameworks and ways to unpick things that people can work through um, in their own context. Um, and I, I, I guess the only thing that initially came up when one of the things that came up when you were initially asking that was um, one of the things that I found really interesting, for example, when um, uh, when Reinventing Organizations, the book by Lelou came out, was how many in there were actually product based companies, uh, for example, which you might not have expected. So, um, yeah, those were just some thoughts I had about those questions. I'm a bit puzzled, you know, for example, when you say uh, we don't sell, pro we are not a product organization. Hmm? What kind of sustainability model does dark matter have? You know, what is the skin in the game? What is the entrepreneurial accountability here? Because that's a crucial point. Let me, let me explain a bit more. As long as you are on the market, the risk I see is that all these things that we talk about, so, and I mean, as an, as a, as an opposite of being on the market, I'm, 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 I'm talking about dealing with local context, landscape, essentially land and community. For me, you know, either you work on the market, specialized society, or you operate at the level of creating fundamental economies locally, like agriculture, energy production, welfare, uh, education, whatever, but at a very embedded level. That's in, in a opposition i would say no it's not opposition it's a it's a different space that the one that you seem to operate which is much more global mission driven you know? so if you are on the market then the risk i see is that we're just patronizing people you know what i mean the people that work in the organization if they don't have skin in the game they're not entrepreneurially account accountable the risk I see is that we just, uh, maybe there is a strong leadership in the organization that makes the case for taking care and governance and whatever, and we just patronize people. So my ask, my ask, my, my, and my question to, and then I have another thing that I wanted to, to drop, but the first question for you, and maybe for Annette, that is much more into the practicalities as I understand of organizing and designing these processes. I'm sure Indy, you, you always, you also do this, but, the question would be, how do you, uh, what are the artifacts in your organization that ensure that, first of all, people have, all the people have risk holding and all the people 
have accountability? And secondly, how do you avoid patronizing people? You know, how do you avoid a governance structure that imposes a cultural bias for care and, and sharedness and open communication instead of efficiency, self-organization, uh, bubbles of coordination that do not necessarily have to, for example, talk to each other. No? So it's much more about letting people do their job and, and, and letting them focus on producing their, giving their contribution. So this is the first thing. And as a side note, uh, I want to drop this uh, point, which is related to really the human development thesis that uh, uh, Indy uh, brought, brought up. No? So the idea that uh, uh, you want to design an organization where, where there is a plurality of uh, expressions for the humans involved. You know, in this, in this, you know, if you design uh, uh, an enough, uh, I would say, diverse or, or careful ways of governance, uh, you can express really the, the plurality of human development thesis, uh, which I, I totally, I totally, uh, I totally buy as a objective of the organization. That's something that I can buy in. Having an organization where we can express a diversity of uh, leadership contribution. No? Why maybe in the, in the traditional way that I also seems to, sometimes I seem to, pro, to, to promote, is much more entrepreneurial. No? It's much more about one monolithic thesis of development that is the one of the entrepreneur. But my point here is, I, I, I'm afraid that if we do not re-embed the organization into these fundamental problems, which are somehow detached from this mission complexity that happens at a much broader scales. So we are talking about recasting our organization at a much smaller scale, much community embedded, a much more landscape embedded scale. We cannot really unlock this plurality of human development thesis. Because I connect this with the idea of conviviality, for example, from Illich, I don't know, or others, that to some extent tell us that we have to restrain a bit if we really want to express human, human, the human, the real humanity that we have, uh, to some extent. You know, we have to refuse technology, for example, no? to some extent. We have to refuse maybe this uh, idea of uh, uh, very powerful and very detailed ways of governance because they to some extent they may uh, i don't know overwrite more convivial ways of in, interacting that may be in just in the realm of re-embedding organizations into these fundamental elements of the economy so just as a recap because it was a very long question i would say that the question is is dark matter on the market or not is it there maybe selling missions how do you avoid patronizing people? And how do you avoid, uh, and how do you increase the risk holding and the accountability and the entrepreneurial accountability of everyone if you do, or if you have you know, different theses, of course, I'm here to, to learn from you. Yeah, uh, so many good questions in there. I, I suppose my intuition would be that we don't operate on the market and we operate actually in the act of creating markets. Now, and so operating in the market is the preconditioned notion of value, and thereby you're trading into an existing value system. Whereas actually what, what I think DM tries to do is create new theories of value 
Now, then there's a fundamental question about whether they are market value functions or whether they're non-market market value functions. And I think there's some really interesting, important questions about whether land, for example, can be a market function or whether land exists in a different, different theory of value. So I think there's a whole bunch of, that if we use the market as a kind of an idea of, of notion of value, then I think we design those things, but I think we don't necessarily design to market. Uh, I think there's a limit to market theory as a mechanism of organizing value, and I think it's very useful at certain points. So I think that's one thing I would say is the way we operate in that, that dimension. And that is about how we organize towards that. And that can be at the financial level, the contractual level, or even uh, or the governance level of those things, of, of those features. So that's, you know, so a tree is a great example. Um, you know, what is the the value that the tree generates and to whom does it create benefits? And uh, if it's a co-beneficiary system, how do you ensure a new theory of governance, which means it isn't optimized just for carbon sequestration, but actually deals with other multidimensional forms of value, which are critical. So, so I think what we look at is the construction of those value frameworks and thereby redefining the thing itself in that process. And you can use the tree as an example. You could look at it in mental health. You could look at other dimensions of the theories of, of civic infrastructures. For me, these are critical civic infrastructures. And you could also talk about organizational theory. So democracy itself is a piece of intangible asset of society and how societies make decisions. So we would look at the design and the frameworks of those things, of those institutional capabilities. So I think that's one part of the question is like, where do we operate? Um, the second part, I think it's a really good question. I, th I think we're currently at the stage where risk and uh, value or skin in the game is constructed socially, and we haven't crystallized it yet into being constructed technically in the organization. And I think that's absolutely fine. So I think this is a journey we're on, and I think the journey we're on has been actually slowly evolving that process. And, but it has, I mean, it has materialized. So for example, there was a moment when we had a cash flow crisis and actually that cash flow crisis was handled really transparently and it was, and people came in and actually put in their own money. So people perceived the idea of risk and value together in a shared endeavor and contributed to that transition. And that I think is a great example of actually, actually the social capital and the social infrastructure being there for people to be able to do that. And I think, I think we have, so we've built, I think, the social compact and the governance decision-making frameworks and the kind of trust in the infrastructure of how we are trying to reliably create that. I think what we haven't yet done is created what I would call an incentive pooling system or incentive mechanism, which does that through a technical lens. Now, whether we will do that and how we will do that is, I think, up for design and debate yet um, and how we pool that sort of stuff. So I think we've been doing it through, through the integrity. And I think this is really important in my view is that I think, you know, and I could take no credit for it. And I, you know, I, I think Annette has been holding this, but actually the quality of how the decision-making has been held in the organization and the trust in the information structures and the trust in the mission and the, and the people's belief that they are part of something together, which they will together make decisions to whilst contributing to different components, taking an organization, not being, not privileging the theory of management as the theory of value, but actually everyone's role having theory of value. So a graphic designer is paid in the same formula as, as somebody who would theoretically be lead, you know, one of the management team in, the, in that model. So I think what we've created is created this kind of deep institutional layers of, of that trust. I think what we haven't yet done, and we, we have tested it, like I said, in that moment, but I think what we haven't yet done is turned around and fully embed that. Uh, into into another more uh, into a risk world model. The what the final point I'd make, and I want to hand over, 
is I do think there's a really open question about the risk reward as an incentive mechanism for organizing value. I think that's that's a very human economist theory of incentive. The other way of actually seeing it, and I think this this is you know one of the things that we do do in our pay conversations is we're saying you're not paid for the work that you do. Right? We're not trying to do a trade for value you create, which I think is a very neoclassicist, slightly boring theory of the world. Actually, what we're trying to do is create the framework for you to be able to live uh, to do the work that you want to do. So if you turn pay for being a reward mechanism to being a, a piece of infrastructure for you to do the work that you want to do, fundamentally, theory changes our theory of, of what is your relationship to the organization. Now, that can be one dimension of the pay structure, and there could be other dimensions of the pay structure. But building fundamentally pay, not as a reward system, but as a mechanism to do the work that you do, certainly creates a different type of capability in the organization. Now, I think there can be employment bonds and other things that we are exploring, which look at future value in different formats that I think could be laid on top of that. But I think I, I would ask that question. And I think one thing I would say is doing it that way changes who joins the organization because people join the organization to do the work they want to do not join the organization as an incentive system and i think that's really critical for the for the typology of work that we do and the typology of culture my final point would be you're absolutely right we're making an organizational decision that actually being orientated around enabling and care actually allows for this decentralized agency for people to make smarter decisions at the edges of the organization in periphery with con with context in a smarter way than somebody who's left, left on their own. So what we're building is actually the freedom, the capacity, and the kind of structural agency to do that. The freedom, which isn't just about do what you want and we'll penalize you if you get it wrong, but actually a genuine freedom, which isn't about precarity, but is actually about stability. A genuine freedom, which is actually about building the capacity for you to learn openly and honestly. And actually that builds all of our capacities to be smarter and reduces thereby the error rate. So I think there's a different theory of organizing that, that is possible and think we're testing. And I would say DM is not the world. DM is a very, 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 very small part of the world. So I think we are contributing a, a contribution to a wider system of transformation, which I think we're positing a different point of view. So just to sort of play across that spectrum. I know Stina has another question, but before jumping into that, maybe to Annette, uh, how do you then organize, uh, uh, you know, continuing this question that uh, Indy has, has, you know, started to, to highlight, how do you then make sure that if somebody shows up to do the work they want to do, it doesn't happen that someone else will do the work that they don't want to do? because of their responsibility or maybe just their, because they're there and they have, they're accountable. And so they have to do the work that somebody else doesn't want to do. Yeah, thanks, Simone. Um, I, I feel like maybe this is also partly linked to a, a question that you'd asked that, I mean, Indy covered so, so much ground there. Um, so wonderfully, there was, a, there was a question that you'd asked that perhaps some um, could touch upon as part of, bundle into this question you just asked as well, which was um, about, patronizing people um and uh you know how how do you not get into a situation of that and i feel like maybe this is linked here so i'll see if i can draw a thread through it's definitely um, linked that's the point that i was raising because that's yeah, the way I, that you pattern once i do the work that you don't want to do i can patronize you yeah i thought um you're you you posited a few kind of um 
counteracting frames when you ask that question. And I didn't capture all of them, but um, they were really interesting ones. So I, the first one you said was over communication versus efficiency. Um, so efficiency is one of these drivers that has been coming up a lot in the work that we've been exploring in Beyond the Rules, particularly how the drive for efficiency coupled with this uh, kind of 20th century uh, me modes of organizing with you with, will create this kind of like scientific uh, approach to kind of like a mechanistic approaches to organizing and scientific breakdown with a drive for efficiency. Um, uh, which I which I find really interesting because a, a lot of how I see how that shows up isn't very inefficient. Um, and I have been looking a lot at like, well, what do we fit that drive rather than for efficiency, but, but for efficacy? Um, and it's interesting how that then sits alongside the point of communication. So um, we the the ways that DM has kind of been forming to organize the things that we've been putting energy into, for example, the compounded learning piece, which we've talked about a, a few times already, um, that's really been coming up out of a, a desire from like a very distributed desire across the across the team. So it wasn't something that was in place in our, we had a very, very loose um, organizing structure, say a year ago, um, and increasingly been recognizing the points which makes people's work incredibly more effective uh, and one of those was the compounded learning piece so as soon as we started to find these really beautiful ways to create uh, learning across the system in a way that compounds people uh, really expressed how that had transformed their ability to do their work in much better ways like created leaps forward for people to be much more effective in the work that they were doing um, so in many ways it's uh, what we've been trying to build is these like targeted approaches that speak to what people have been identifying through doing their work that by creating these shared platforms um, we can be much more effective uh, and I think if we were to really dig down into it we'd probably find much more efficient um, I mean I don't know what the normal kind of management or like central services overhead is in an organization I know that um uh, where we've looked at how much of the time of the team goes into all of the sort of uh, stuff that sits between us, what would typically be management time, but obviously we're self-managed, so we don't have layers of management in the organization. But, you know, all of the different types of operational functions from the practical finance um, through to all of the organizing side of things uh, through to governance, it's about 10%. Uh, I'm assuming that's probably a bit lower insofar as you normally have like a manager for seven people and then a central services department and then an executive team and things like that. So I think generally it's it's relatively, it's quite light touch and I, I'd assume probably a bit more efficient, in fact, possibly even highly more efficient than many other ways, but really focus on what makes us effective, uh, not, you know, not just efficient, but effective um, in the work we do. Um, and... Uh, I see that very much being driven from the edges of the organization, from people who are practicing and asking for, you know, can somebody put energy into this because we can see value in it and we need it across. So that's how much of the, the things have been um, have been developed. And, you know, care, I think, was one of the ones that you mentioned, has really become part of that. I think very much because risk holding, responsibility and accountability is very distributed across the organization. and 
just increasingly, I think it becomes so evident that when people are really sat in their agency, when they're when they have the power and the autonomy to take a direction with work, the responsibility then to deliver it, the risks that come with that and the accountability that comes with that, it can be quite an overwhelming place. And so the platform of care then becomes a really critical um, foundation for people to be able to step into that agency with the security and support that they need for, you know, difficult times um, or when that intersects with other things that might be happening in their personal life. You know, everybody's got their own things going on at the same time. So that care piece really actually we found as a really important complement to the risk holding, accountability, responsibility in particular sides, but also the power and autonomy sides um, of, of agency and of uh, that, that overall kind of dominance, if you will. And uh, I suppose trying to link this back to your final question, Simone, um, so how do people, if they want to show up to do the work that they want to do, what about the stuff that people don't want to do? Where does that fall to? You know, who picks that up? It's a really, it's a really great question. And I don't know, I'd be interested also in, in Indy's perspective on this. Um, my sense is from the work that I do, because we have, my sense is certainly from the place that I operate um, within DM, because the the each person within our operations section, if you will, is holding on to an area of our work, which includes all of the tissue that goes in between those areas of work, the stuff that you're not expecting, the things that haven't been planned. There's a great deal of distributed taking on of uh, those kind of less glamorous tasks that might pop up. Um, I experience them to be held in a really distributed way and that people generally see their roles as something that's taking on a fair share of the whole that's that's my experience within it um indy you know I, i'd be interested in your uh, perspective on that too no very much agree with you i suppose one of the things i, I was just speaking to and sort of a friend and a colleague of mine and we were talking about you know they were organizing a conference and said oh it's all gone wrong yesterday and i was like why i said well yeah i don't know what had gone wrong but it, but it was really in the conversation, what came out was it wasn't that people weren't technically efficient. Actually, sometimes to solve things, you have to care. And care actually also creates a capacity to resolve problems at a different dimension, which isn't about the efficiency of process, but is actually about actually the care to the intent of the outcome and the goal. And that emotional frame is actually vital to do work when actually the answer is not known or simply understood. And so the, the care dimension for me is I know it's a soft word, but I think it's a critical word in work like this. And, I, and it has multidimensional problems because I actually more challenges problems in the sense that I think when people care, they can also put themselves in positions where they exhaust themselves. They can put themselves in positions where they are actually vulnerable in other formats. So it, it, it obliges, I, I think, a different idea of the social contract of the organization when you employ those devices, both in terms of care for the mission but also the care for care for each other in different formats. So I think, I think, I'm. I suppose I'm just conscious that when you touch that word, it is a word with great power and great power for good and bad in that in in that word. And I think it has to be handled very carefully in the management and the operationalization of it. So maybe not fully answering your 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 point, Annette, but I, I think there's something really there's something we're unfolding and looking at in a in a in a slow but deliberative way. 
Thank you. I, I actually have had something quite similar to ask, but I think you, so you've, you've answered to the parts of that, but I'm still curious because I understand that picking up the pieces is fairly distributed task, let's say, among the people. And I, I know that you mentioned that you you choose people, you, you refrain a bit from using roles, but I would still be curious. So when, when you select people or when people come to your organization, do you try still to find complementarities between what people want to do? Because I could see a risk that if everyone wants to create new stuff, that's great, but that also runs the risk of spreading yourself thin and not having those who are more there to do the scaffolding work. And some people really enjoy doing that as well. Um, and they can do make that their, <laughs> their own, uh, let's say, place to hold in the organization. So I don't know if, if you look into that or if it's more about distributing each person across those different tasks. My view is that there is space for care, innovation and value creation at every point in the organization. You can touch anything and with care, it becomes genius. And so I don't have this idea of there's utility, there's kind of this utilitarian back and then there's this you know, hero sitting up front or somewhere. I actually think there is great power and agency and care in every point of the system. And every point can create value in a, in a really powerful way. So, and I think that is the invitation for me to everyone in the organization. And I think that I think is really critical. I think, yeah, so I, I, I suppose I'm resisting this utilitarian sort of Protestant kind of theory of kind of like utilitarian backbone and everything else sitting up front is the kind of heroes who do innovation. I think there is something else. I think this this requires a different type of relationship with each other. And that's been, an, I would argue, almost as much as that's been an intentional part of, for me, about designing the organization is not to set, set up that principle of utility. But I, Annette, maybe you'll come in and disagree with me. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you um, whatsoever. I, um, I think maybe we could probably put a bit more flesh on on the bone of what that might look like as well when it shows up. Um, you know, and, and I think it's a really great question because hiring is quite an art in, in this. Um, you know, we have lots of moving pieces of work. What we might have, what we're looking at and the, the, the particular things that might make up a role right now are likely to be, you know, but it can be really different in a, in a year's time um, in many ways. You know, I know for, for myself, like the role that I'm playing now feels really different to the one that I was playing a year ago. Um, so we, but we do also recognize, I suppose, that there are particular complementary skill sets that sit across the system. There are particular complementary experiences and ways of operating that then there need to be plurality of those and there are different ones that complement each other so I guess we're looking at pieces in the jigsaw puzzle that need to fit together and often that will start with a particular piece of work um, but we'll be trying to think like okay well, this is the role in this work but what what does it look like as a broader piece in the jigsaw puzzle if you will um, uh, I mean I probably a jigsaw puzzle is not a very good metaphor seeing as it's static but um, you know so we'll be bringing people in that have got an area that really complements but also that has the ability to to shed and move through the system as the the circumstances change so um often people might you know be working on a particular piece of work for a period of time hand over 
that role or, or something about that piece of work might change in its nature, that either their role will change or they'll pick up other types of roles in the system, um, but they'll still be bringing their unique kind of skills and ways of operating into that team. So there's something that we do about trying to spot like what are the core capabilities and things that we need across the system to have that that mix. So I think that just to give you a sense of perhaps how that practically shows up in reality. Well, I'm aware of the time, unfortunately, because uh, this is a conversation we could run a conference on, I think, or, or even a week of conferences. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's really about cracking, cracking the code of organizations in complexity, I think, in, in, the, in, the, in the nexus we are living. If I can close this conversation before just uh, leaving you some space to talk about what's coming up at Dark Matter Labs, my impression is that most of the organizational trends that we are spotting from these pioneers in the market are, are maybe about uh, ensuring that the organization uh, in a kind of cybernetics um, approach has the same complexity internally that the market has externally now. So these teams uh, that can cooperate and contract, uh, contract between each other, like the work we are doing with the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Edinburgh. But then your, your point, I think that I'm getting, maybe I'm wrong, is that to some extent, you, we also have to recognize that our organizations need to have the same in, institutional structure that systems are, uh, are losing to some extent, are losing their capability to provide. So to some extent, the organization becomes responsible of care, of you know, enabling, of uh, seeing what needs to be seen uh, to some extent. And uh, uh, as a closing point, I think I feel like that this dark matter of organizing is really dark. <laughs> I mean that there are still paradoxes that we have to crack and maybe we won't crack uh, anytime soon. Paradoxes, for example, in too much governance and potentially borderline patronizing. On the other side, uh, too low, uh, too, too much freedom and then uh, overlooking that, overlooking questions like care, for example, and how uh, Indy said uh, at the closure, uh, care is really can unlock much more value that otherwise uh, won't happen if you don't just bridge, let's say, or efficiency with care and efficacy with uh, with uh, you know looking into the, the the darkness of this organizational matter that we have to 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 deal with. So these are just my some of my. Uh, latest point, probably if there is one thing that remains open for me is this question of, uh, of you know, I don't feel we, we are still, uh, and I, th I think you guys have been doing so, so much work with these in your civic uh, innovation parts, uh, your civic innovation work and so on. Uh, I don't see yet that we are, we seem to be mature enough as a, as a organizational developers to, to, to acknowledge that to really address the questions of complexity, we have to address the small of our communities, our families, our landscapes. And it seems like the question of working in our context is still not sexy enough. And we somehow fail to see that this can really be the place where human nature and human you know, the, the human development thesis that Indy talks about can be expressed in, in all its plurality and diversity in a convivial, contextual, embedded space. And we still have these minds, you know, focused on solving the weaker problems, the big issues, and having these crazy important missions. 
you know, this is something we have to crack, but I'm just sharing this with you. I think we've been saying something quite different, actually, over this call, mm-hmm. actually. So and I think, so the, the question about who cares is, I think, really important. So if, you, if we think it's about the organization, we are, we are detaching the organization from the body politic. And in your conversation, it always becomes there is this organization and then there's the people. And I think what we're saying is that's not the way to look at it because you're taking a classical approach of debodying the theory of who organizes management. But actually, when you re-embody those things, i.e. bring them together, the theory of care is not done by one person to another. Right? It, is an, it is a relationship of care that exists between people. So it's not about, and I think that's really important in terms of nuance of this conversation. Second thing is, I think, again, the detachment of what is familial and what is market. I think these theories of kind of uh, abstraction to saying this is market and this is familial, increasingly, I think we're talking about cosmological relationships, which happen at the local and the global, they're interconnected. And the violence of the local manifests at the global level and vice versa. Right, so the violence of us actually consuming stuff which reduces CO two, CO two impacts at a global level, and violence of decisions of trade mechanisms impact at a local level. So I think the kind of articulation of these things as separation doesn't help us deal with the complexity. And this is one of the things that I think has been really clear to me in the work that we've been doing is the ability to work diagonally between what is perceptibly the proximus, the thing that we're touching, the so food system, the food itself to the abstraction of governance and finance, actually to see these things as link things, not detached things becomes really critical. So for me, you know, what's really clear is actually there is a different theory of organizing, which fundamentally comes outside the violence of control. And if you move humans outside the violence of control, which I think has been classical management theory, which is a kind of a theory of control. And fundamentally, the question is who controls? So in a large group, the question is, do you end up with a management model of control, a CEO? Even if it's a cooperative, is it a CEO of a cooperative? Do you end up with a management theory? Do we still end up with a king or a queen at the top of that pyramid? And you can do whatever we like. If we end up with a control model, it gives you the same results. The question is, are we trying to move past theories of control? Are we trying to enter theories of actually a learning models? And a platform, in a way, let's let's bring it to the platform logic, is is the proceduralization of a theory of control into compartmentalization for other people to play roles in. So it's a very classical, it's just the commodification and the precision of a theory of control into a framework. And I would say a theory of control works very well in what are predictable linear systems. Now, you can have machine-assisted platform models, which actually allow for evolution of roles and evolution of actors, which is, I think, where we're going to end up having to go. But I also think, on the human side, we're going to have to do that. So I think there's a nuance here, for me, that's really important, because I don't think this is about the paternalization of one actor versus the other, but it's actually about a relationship between actors and setting the terms, like you say, of the platform, the corporation, or the or company sets the terms of those relationships between each other, to which there is no management, no seniority in the terms of a classical decision-making model um, in that framework. And I think that that does, I would argue, lead for greater emancipation. The fundamental point 
of a learning model is to maximize the emancipation and the freedom of agency at every point in the system to be able to innovate. And that's not just a moral idea, that's a fundamentally an idea in a complex system, you have to decentralize the, and distribute the capacity to innovate, to be able to respond to ever-changing contexts. They are always going to be smarter than any single point of innovation in an organization. So I just wanted to be sort of pull that stuff together and through that lens, because I think for me, that's really critical and it's at the centerpiece of a lot of our thinking. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, I, I, I think I have to listen to the conversation of you a bunch of times and write down my notes and, and possibly several blog posts on this. And so, I mean, really, I want to, to thank you both because I, I, we're already late five minutes, so I don't want to take more, more time of, uh, as, as we plan. So thank you both. It was such an enriching conversation. I'm thankful we had found you know, some time to, to dedicate to that, uh, starting from that uh, quick Twitter combo, and uh, I'm really encouraging all our listeners to catch up with your work, with your blogs, especially the uh, Organizing Beyond the Rules uh, series. Maybe one last thing for today, uh, maybe Annette, you can complement the last point that uh, Indy brought up. If you can tell us more about what's coming up in the Dark Matter Labs uh, future and what people, where also people can uh, maybe connect with your work more easily besides your Medium channel and your Twitter account. So what what is coming up? We've uh, got lots coming up on, on Beyond the Rules, but I mean, you'll probably be here for half a day if Indy's going to go through what's coming up at ETF in general. Anything you think we should highlight, Indy? I, I mean, there'll be stuff and there'll be stuff coming up. I just wanted to thank you, Simone and Stina. I think, I think it's important we have these sort of robust conversations. And that's part of the reason I don't like to shy away from this stuff. And I think, I, Simone, I, I appreciate you digging because I think actually it makes me smarter. <laughs> I'm really selfish about this because it just makes me smarter. And I think it makes us all smarter because every one of those questions forces me to think in different ways and forces me to respond. And I think this level of interrogation is really critical, uh, especially as it's a, as a learning discourse in, in the community, because I think none of us have the answers. Anyone does, I think they're lying. So then the only question is, how are we learning? and how are we holding ourselves to account in that format? So I just wanted to, you know, Simone, I wanted to just appreciate, just send out my appreciation for the time and uh, that process as well. Thank you so much both. Uh, thank you, Annette. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having us on. It's been a really insightful conversation and I and I really agree on the, the rigor of trying to dig through these things. I think when you go deep is where um, you really get to understanding uh, some of the things that come up. I, I also, I mean, not to keep us here because I know we're wrapping up, but um, uh, there's there's a future conversation in there about this uh, spectrum of patronizing governance versus independent entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism, which is a dichotomy. I'm not I'm not sure it's there, Simone, but um, to pick up a, another day. Um, I really really appreciate your time and and the conversation, and uh, it's great to learn with you. Thanks for having me. Just to say also that we will put, of course, like this series in our show notes so the listeners will find this and your profiles and links to yeah your publications and, and so on. So con we can continue and get a new Twitter thread and then come back on a call <laughs> for the next time. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bandless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, Please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundless.io for our latest news and updates. 
There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.